Alert Medic 1 respond. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. And I'm Ken Sanner. Today we are going to be continuing our airway management discussion with Dr. David Berg. Hello. We t- last time talked about basically the anatomy and some of the physiology of it. Today we're going to dive into the actual intervention, so VLS area management, uh, intubation, and a few other things. And I think it's really interesting when we look at intubation in particular. It's so closely tied to the identity of being a paramedic for so many people. It's really something that for many people it's inseparable from their profession. It holds a lot of value for them. It really defines, it's a defining part of who we are as paramedics. So I think it's an interesting skill and a lot of people get really defensive when that skill is threatened. You know, one of the things we'll talk about are some of the studies that say maybe outcomes aren't so good when we have paramedics intubating. But of course, there are some confounding factors that kind of throw that into into the air as a question. So, so I mean, back to yeah, I mean, so as a paramedic, I've had, you know, working in an RSI jurisdiction versus not being in an RSI jurisdiction. I've had so many patients, and anecdotal evidence is terrible evidence. I understand this. But I've had my butt saved so much when I have had a sick patient that was, you know, needed acute airway management. And when I had RSI there, when I had a supervisor coming that was able to provide that intervention, we had way better outcomes. And I've had patients recently, so where I function now, we don't have RSI. And I just had a patient last week who, like, I really needed that tool. I didn't have it in my toolbox, and airway management was delayed by 15 minutes. And, yeah, it's so important. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have an airway, you don't have a patient. And that airway can take a lot of different shapes and forms, and one of those shapes is the BLS airway adjunct. So we'll get into the whole head tilt chin lift BLS uh, maneuvers here momentarily, but we wanted to start off talking about our adjuncts. So we have the oropharyngeal airway and the nasopharyngeal airway. And I'll kind of throw that over to Dr. Wittberg as to what you want to, what direction you want to take us in with that. Yeah, so interesting you're talking about loving that RSI provider being with you. And you also used the words, you know, bias and confounders before. And, and what I was thinking as you were chatting about that was, does that person, because they're RSI trained, bring a higher level of airway experience and expertise and just make everything better, I would not, not only the intubation, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, better control over the whole situation. But anyway, as we talk about uh, you know, ALS airway, we always have to pump the brakes, go backwards. Great ALS airway management is built on a couple of very, very important foundations. Number one, clinical assessment skills, okay? Number two, good, good, basic airway management always has to proceed advanced airway management. And very often that's where kind of the algorithm will stop these days because of the de-emphasis on intubation. And then we can go into advanced airway management. So with regard to your basic airway management, probably one of the most important tools we carry in, in our toolbox is a nasopharyngeal airway. I use it for every basic airway uh, I manage, unless there's a contraindication, before an intubation to optimally pre-oxygenate patient. Whether I'm in the hospital, in the field, nasopharyngeal airway. You're talking about tactical medicine, nasopharyngeal airway is a primary tool. You're talking about routine intubation, nasopharyngeal airway. One of the interesting things that I see folks do and I see other people roll their eyes at is insertion of two NPAs. 
And, you know, during my residency, my airway trainers, my professors said, you know, if you want to improve the patency of the airway and you're not there with one NPA, by all means, insert a second lubricated NPA. And hell, if you have two NPAs in and you're still not getting good chest rise and fall, you're not getting that patient well oxygenated, pre-oxygenated, put in an oral pharyngeal airway. So you have to know your basic airway adjuncts. Feel free to put in one, if not two, if not three basic airway adjuncts, one, two nasopharyngeal airways, an oropharyngeal airway. You've got to remember your basic indications, contraindications for when you can and cannot use those things. Patient has a gag reflex, probably not going to tolerate an oropharyngeal airway. Patient has some sort of obstruction that you can't get an NPA in, you're not going to be able to get it in. But there's no, there's no problem with putting in a second basic airway adjunct to maximize the effectiveness by which you provide excellent basic airway management, coupled with, of course, a good seal on a BBM. And with that, I would also say, you know, we have, a, it's not just the fire service, it's the EMS service that's kind of like stuck in this culture, mm-hmm. like I'm going to do it by myself. I always emphasize, you know, if you're on a call and you have extra hands and those extra hands can be helpful, why on earth would you not want to do good two-person BVM ventilation, have one person create an exquisitely good seal, have the other person squeeze the bag, and by the way, you already put in an NPA or an OPA. So, you know, remember your basic airway adjuncts, put those in. If you have an extra set of hands, two-person BVM ventilation to increase the efficiency by which you oxygenate, ventilate your patient, always a good thing. So I think I want to I say two things, mistakes that I've made, right? So and it, it sounds simple, but uh, I have done this and it was terrible. Number one, don't put an OPA in your opiate overdose patient. Use the NPA because when they wake up, they are going to be throwing up on you. And number two, lubrication, lubrication, lubrication for that NPA. Because I, you know, I know that what, as the turbinates go in, I know it's very vascular, right? And, do, uh, do you prepackage your water-based lubricant yeah. with your NPAs? Yep. So, so that, that sounds obvious, but yeah. I've rode with a couple services and responded to a couple calls locally where the NPA is on one side of the airway bag, lube's on the other. So think a little bit about smart system design, too. Yeah. Lube is life. Keep your lube with your airways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, don't, don't go searching through different pockets for things that are meant to be used for the same procedure. Yeah, so I had an opiate overdose and a patient woke up. And then... Uh, pulls out his NPA and with it just has a massive nosebleed, right? And I'm and my partner was like, did you lube that? I'm like, I thought I did. I, didn't. I had it. And so that's so important. And I think that's that's a good segue into, I, I know we were talking about two provider BVM ventilation. I think that's a good segue to go into airway maneuvers. What do you think? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the primary two maneuvers that we talk about are the head tilt chin lift and the jaw thrust. The head tilt chin lift, of course, being for patients who don't have any suspected spinal trauma and the jaw thrust for patients that do have spinal trauma. And they're both pretty effective maneuvers when used correctly. However, I think especially the jaw thrust in particular, people don't get a lot of practice with and they probably don't do it right a lot because of that. I don't know what your experience is with that, Dr. Wittberg. Uh, so with regard to the jaw thrust, I think that's where a two-person BVM technique is particularly useful. Absolutely. Because if you think of kind of pushing your thumbs down over the mask, kind of mushing that into the cheeks to create that good seal, and then you have your index fingers or your middle fingers to kind of lift up the jaw, it becomes a lot harder when you don't do this as often to do that with one hand with kind of the C-shape uh, or whatever technique you're teaching or learning. So I, I think when you have the opportunity to have both hands on that mask, your 
jaw thrusts will become more effective, easier to do. And I think it's important to talk about what we're doing, right? So why, why are we putting the OPA in? Why are we doing it? So we're getting the tongue out of the way, right? We're trying to open up that airway because that tongue can, and please correct me if I'm wrong, doc. We're trying to get that tongue out of the way. And what are we doing with the NPA? We're introducing a, you know, a hollow tube that goes right to the back of the hypopharynx, right? And then, so we're creating that clear airway. And if you don't have that tube provider a technique, that you're not completely opening it. While we're talking about what we're doing, I think also something that's worth mentioning is the effects of positive pressure ventilation on the body. So we run into a, a few bad things that can happen, especially if you overventilate the patient. You know, gastric distension is a real concern. You're going to increase intrathoracic pressure, which is going to decrease preload. It's going to decrease cardiac output. You know, you hyperoxygenate somebody, you blow off too much CO2, you end up in a situation where you have vasoconstriction in critical areas like the brain and the coronary arteries, which depending on what's wrong with your patient could really make things a lot worse. So I wanted to kind of throw that to you, Dr. Bitberg, see if you had any comments. So I love one of the things you said, and you talked about positive pressure ventilation, increasing intrathoracic pressure, decreasing preload decreasing cardiac output, decreasing blood pressure. So often when I round in the hospital, I ask the residents, I say, you know, what is the pure expected physiologic effect of taking somebody breathing naturally, i.e. negative pressure ventilation, the way we're breathing right now, and squeezing a BVM over their face and, and ventilating them, or putting them on non-invasive ventilation like a CPAP or a BiPAP machine, or at the extreme, putting in a supraglottic airway or intubating them. What is the pure physiologic change you'd expect with regard to blood pressure. And so if you have a perfectly you know, normal subject, or even a compromised subject, a sick subject, and you do that, you know, I think what Ken said bears repeating. Anytime you convert somebody from natural negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation, you have to expect that their blood pressure is going to drop, and you have to be prepared to treat that drop in blood pressure. So part of, part of this whole spiel it's not only being a good airway manager, a basic airway manager, and eventually an advanced airway manager, but it's knowing as we go through this sequence, what could go wrong with my patient and what should I anticipate going wrong with my patient. So again, to hammer home, you got to remember the simple concept, conversion from negative pressure, natural breathing to positive pressure, very, very often causes a drop reduction in blood pressure that you have to be prepared to monitor and treat. So a quick segue on that, we've already discussed it in our vital signs section, but what is cardiac output, right? A good review, stroke volume times heart rate. How are we decreasing the stroke volume? We're decreasing venous return. If you decrease return, you're, you know, there's less blood coming into the heart and you're decreasing that cardiac output. This is actually a mistake that I made, another mistake that I made that uh, I think I, I love learning from my mistakes, of course, as we should all. I had a patient who had uh, significant CHF exacerbation that I was transporting and we got to the hospital and her blood pressure was 80. And I was like, how the hell did I do that? And the physician there described me and I'm like, you know what? It's a concept that I learned that Ken taught me and then I forgot about it until. Right. It's important. It's important to know that, you know, there's no such thing as a standard patient. This may not happen all the time. You may agitate or stimulate somebody so much that you see a uh, rise in blood pressure in the pure physiologic sense. So you have to anticipate a drop in blood pressure with any form of positive pressure ventilation. You know, frequently, patients that we encountered. So let's just take a sample patient. We respond to an elderly patient who has uh, an infection, sepsis, has had dismal oral intake for days. They're hypovolemic, they're dehydrated, and now they're in respiratory distress. 
And so you check their first blood pressure and it's uh, 108 over 70 and you say, okay, great. I, I've got blood pressure, marginal blood pressure. Very soft, yeah. But their tank is half full. So that patient may very well have a very exaggerated response to any form of positive pressure, be it BVM ventilation or insertion of a, of a supraglottic area or an endotracheal tube and positive pressure ventilation. So I was taught during my training you know, it, particularly if you're dealing with a, a potentially or actually hypovolemic patient and you're getting prepared to do positive pressure ventilation, you have to have good IV access, you have to have fluids on, or you have to have some means by which to very quickly intervene and support their blood pressure. I would even take that a step further. If you think about, you know, what kind of patient do we ventilate the most, most frequently? Probably the cardiac arrest patient, right? So we have someone we're now providing CPR, mechanical CPR, They've already got impaired perfusion or impaired cardiac output. It's going to be low. Then you add on top of that somebody who's just squeezing that bag the whole way, you know, a little too frequently, a little too forcefully, and you're decreasing the cardiac output in that situation, you've really got a problem. You know, you're not setting yourself or the patient up for success. Yeah. Again, it goes back to what Ken said earlier. This all ties together. It ties together with the dehydrated, hypovolemic patient I just told you about. It ties together with the cardiac arrest patient. The dangers of, number one, just good old positive pressure ventilation, which can be toxic in and of itself, and the danger of hyperventilation, particularly in cardiac arrest, because of the increased intrathoracic pressure, which pinches the vena cava, which impairs venous return to the right side of the heart, which decreases cardiac output, which in turn decreases blood pressure. So, you know, a really good firm understanding of basic physiology will make you a better provider, EMT or paramedic, if you know these things. So I think I want to finish up with sort of the tools that we use, right? So I think that's uh, that we were talking about before the show. These tools shouldn't be something that are in our hands only when we have to use them. And there's <laughs> such such a different array of tools that we can use to manage the uh, airway. Um, so I want to, let's go into the, real quick, let's go into the indications for endotracheal intubation and then the tools that we use for endotracheal intubation. Yeah, so classically, you know, we're taught, with regard to indications for intubation, if a patient loses their protective airway reflexes. And I've got to tell you that, you know, that takes a little bit of time and skill and experience and seeing a lot of healthy patients that have intact airway reflexes to recognize the patient that doesn't have intact airway reflexes. So, so that's really the premise upon which you, you often make your decision about who needs to be intubated. You know, certainly patients in Florida respiratory distress Patients in respiratory distress that are intolerant or not improving with non-invasive ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP or basic airway management, BBM ventilation. There's the old mantra, GCS less than eight intubate. So people that have an impaired level of consciousness, a low Glasgow coma scale, that lose their protective airway reflexes would, would be an indication to intubate. Airway obstruction, so sometimes we'll have to go in and take a look with a laryngoscope and uh, either remove a foreign body or intubate past the foreign body or some sort of airway obstruction, be it actually from a hunk of steak or a big swollen tongue because of angioedema. You know, a lot of times people want to get intubated just because of their work of breathing. So uh, we try to avoid intubation these days by using things like non-invasive ventilation, particularly CPAP uh, in the pre-hospital setting. But there's going to be a segment of patients that you can't improve them with non-invasive ventilation, and you do have to escalate. Uh, to intubation. The list of indications for intubation is, is pretty huge. I think the most important thing is just the same way you try to train a provider to recognize sick versus not sick, 
recognizing as a airway manager, ALS provider, who needs to be intubated, it takes time, it takes a lot of practice and patient assessment, it takes a lot of calls, it takes a lot of seeing the sick patient that needs to be intubated versus the one that does not need to be intubated. Because the last thing you want to do is intubate somebody who you may have been able to temporize via other means of VVF ventilation or non-invasive ventilation that ultimately didn't need to be intubated. So when you talk about indications for intubation there, who would be a patient that intubation would definitely be contraindicated? And obviously the patient that is able to maintain their own airway would be probably the biggest example, most of our patients. But are there any other factors that would cause you to say, ah, we probably shouldn't intubate this person right now? Yes. So how many of you have treated a patient with a hole in their neck? Okay. So you have to know, is that hole in their neck a tracheostomy? So does that patient, number one, have a, a have relatively normal airway anatomy, where if I put a laryngoscope or a video laryngoscope in their mouth, I'm going to be able to connect point A to point B and pass the tube from through their lips, down their airway, through vocal cords, into their trachea. So you have to recognize the difference between somebody that has a tracheostomy and can be intubated versus somebody that has a laryngectomy where their trachea has actually been cut and brought forward to the front of their neck. Typically, a patient with a laryngectomy, if you put a laryngoscope in their mouth, you're, you're going into a dead end. Nothing happening. Okay? The other thing, nice thing, is people with laryngectomies usually don't have problems with airway obstruction because the hole goes right from their neck right into their airways. They may have a mucus plug that needs to be suctioned. You may need to put a uh, tracheostomy back into that hole. You may need to put an endotracheal tube in that hole, but they're usually the easiest airways to manage. Anytime you see a patient that has a uh, stoma, Anytime you hear about a patient with uh, head and neck cancer, anytime you hear about a patient that had head or neck surgery, uh, you have to try to get that critical piece of information from family member, the patient themselves, medical records if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you have access to them, people that are around the patient, can this patient be intubated you know, to make the decision, am I just working through the hole in their neck, either a tracheostomy or laryngectomy, or can I intubate them from above? So I think a big thing going along with that, there's so many getting that patient history, right? And I think we're kind of, that we'd be segueing if we go too deep into this, but oftentimes when we walk, you know, as paramedics walk in, they see this really sick patient and they just want to jump to a particular skill. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, another point I want to talk about. As our practice increases as paramedics, there's more interventions that we can do. And often I always hear older paramedics that tell me that when we got CPAP, the people that, you know, the amount of intubations we did starkly dropped. Right. And along with that, we're getting tools like magnesium. We're getting tools like, you know, uh, you know, so many pharmaceutical interventions where during our transport, we're able to do those interventions. So, and sometimes we get disappointed when the patient still gets intubated, but it doesn't matter because we did our job as the airway manager, not just the intubator. I want to take that a step further. So I've been in practice since finishing my training for 10 years now. Vapotherm, OptiFlow, high-flow nasal cannula. Just in my short decade career in emergency medicine and critical care, I intubate far fewer people since the advent of high-flow nasal cannulas. Now, I'm not talking about a high-flow 5-6 liters. I'm talking about the brand names are Vapotherm or OptiFlow that can deliver up to 30 to 40 liters per minute flow, up to 100% oxygen, humidified. The number of patients that I've had to intubate because of those devices has gone way, way down. And those devices are particularly useful for people with hypoxemic respiratory failure Whereas non-invasive ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP is good for both hypoxemic respiratory failure and people who also have ventilatory failure, problems with chest rise and fall, 
and expelling carbon dioxide. So there are a lot of things that have come into the pre-hospital arena and things that have come into the hospital arena that have decreased the need to have to uh, intubate folks. Just like we saw non-invasive ventilation come out into the field and it's decreased our opportunities for intubation, what I'm saying is that these high flow nasal cannula systems are making their way out into the field more and more, particularly into like skilled care transport units. But I think with those units coming out into the field, we may see a further decline in the number of patients that need to be intubated. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of starting into, we talked about a little bit of the tools, but let's finish up with the tools that we'd be using. So, uh, you know, the different blades, so, you know, Miller versus Macintosh and, you know, straight versus curved, where they sit in the anatomy. And then let's dive a little bit into, you know, kind of like the bougies and title CO2 and stuff like that. So Mac blades, curved blades, uh, we talked in our last episode about slow, progressive visualization of airway structures. Your curved blades in general should be pushed slowly down towards the molecular. In the molecular, we lift the blade towards that corner in the ceiling ahead of us and we lift the epiglottis to, to get our tube through the cords. Straight blades, Miller blades, are generally designed to directly manipulate the epiglottis and lift the epiglottis directly. So those are your two primary blades. Now, there's actually a host of other kind of proprietary blades. There, there's blades that are very, very wide, kind of spatulas, that you know can elevate the whole tongue, that you don't have to put the blade in the corner of the mouth and sweep the tongue over. Here's the bottom line. You have to know your equipment. You have to know how to assemble your equipment. You have to have backup devices to your primary pieces of equipment, and you have to train with your equipment. So those are the two types of blades that are in common use. You've mentioned bougies. Bougies are considered generally a rescue device. If we go in and we sweep the tongue away and we lift the epiglottis, and let's say that we have a big floppy epiglottis and we actually can't see the vocal cords, we can use a bougie to kind of sneak underneath the epiglottis, and the word is sound the tracheal ring. So we actually push that through the cords, with the curved end up towards the tracheal rings, and then in our hand, okay, so we're holding our laryngoscope in our left hand, and the bougie in our right hand, we sound the tracheal rings, and we feel that click of those anterior tracheal rings, leave that in place, put an endotracheal tube lubricated over the bougie, and advance it through the cords. And one of the pitfalls there is that people often take the laryngoscope out while they try to snake the tube over the bougie, and when you take that laryngoscope out and you let go of the elevation of the epiglottis, the epiglottis can actually fold back down. And then as you're pushing the tube along the bougie, the edge of the ET tube can hang up on the epiglottis. So when I do my airway instruction, I always have people maintain their left hand with that epiglottic elevation, push the ET tube over the bougie, usually with like an assistant. And then after you watch that tube go through the cords, then you can kind of release your hand and withdraw the uh, laryngoscope. So we talked about Macintosh curve blades, we talked about Miller straight blades, we talked a little bit about a bougie, and some little pearls and pitfalls of using a bougie. You know, there's a hypothetical complication you can run into with ramming a bougie down somebody's airway and puncturing the trachea, or particularly if you get past the carina, into the smaller airways. So all of this stuff, you know, just like with progressive visualization, you want to pump the brakes and slow the procedure down by a couple seconds and appreciate what you're looking at. You know, you're talking about a critical area of the body. You're talking about the airway. Introduction of the bougie should be done gently. It should not be rammed down. You don't want to injure the airway. You actually don't want to hit the vo- you don't want to hit the uh, vocal cords if you can. You don't want to cause a damage to the vocal cords and hematoma on the vocal cords because even after the patient recovers from whatever illness required them to get intubated, you don't want them to be left with vocal cord dysfunction, vocal cord paralysis. 
other pieces of airway equipment that have to be mentioned, superglottic airways. So we have a whole host of superglottic airways. And we'll be discussing that in other episodes as well. Available. We'll yeah. get into it a little later. Any other pieces of airway equipment you wanted to touch on? I think for now, that's pretty good. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty solid. I will say one thing. I never intubate anymore without suction right next to me. Um, yeah. And we don't need to go. You, you mentioned suction pretty well in the part we'll start, of this. And we're definitely going to yeah. start with that. In the yeah. Next one, yeah. So, yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about in future episodes optimal you know, preparation for this skill of intubation, yes. including, you know, kind of pulls and pitfalls of the entire procedure. But, you know, we're, we're kind of touching on a lot of different things. But again, I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning, you know, training, good assessment skills, preparation, knowing your equipment, great basic airway management always has to precede advanced airway management. And uh, we really want to get into training and stuff in part three of this, but I think for now, this is a great place to leave it. I want to thank everybody for listening. Don't forget to check us out online, alertmedic1.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, alert underscore medic1. Please subscribe, download, listen to our podcast. You can find us anywhere great podcasts are found. We appreciate your time, your patronage, and hope you have a good day. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Uh, please give us uh, a five-star rating, give us reviews, tell your friends. And absolutely, please, please, please send your feedback. Let us know what you want to hear, how we're doing, any uh, critique that you have. As we've discussed plenty of times before, this is a community-driven podcast, and we definitely want your feedback. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 